Hello, Graham Norton here on the Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose for another podcast. Let's get cracking. Kerry Washington has a brand new memoir, Thicker Than Water, and joins me to tell me all about it. Victoria Hislop is back with a brand new book, The Figurine. And Joseph Martha is back with some udon noodles. You know it's going to be good. And Maria McCurlin is here. We'll be putting our heads together to answer your dilemmas in Graham's Guide. Let's cross to her now. Hello, Maria. Do you know what? You look very dry. Dry? What's way? Oh, because, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I wear lots of clothes. Yes. For someone who was outside, <laughs> yeah. you look very dry. I thought you meant you look very dry as in desiccated and old. <laughs> I thought you meant like a crinkly look, bit of You leaf. look very flaky. <laughs> <laughs> I was in the loo. I had to rush, Graham. Oh! Sometimes, you know, I just got caught short. <laughs> well, thank, thank, thankfully you did it before. But we were also just talking to Steve Denyer, who has been to see Madonna four times. She's only done it four times. Yeah, he went to every show. <laughs> and I like the fact that he's breaking down, which was better on each night. Yes, and he's now breaking into her tour bus. and he's, he's... <laughs> That is quite stalky, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, out of the corner of her eye, him again. <laughs> <laughs> that, that little guy down there, can you have him removed? <laughs> I think he works at Virgin. <laughs> this is why I'm going on so late. I, I won't come on till he's gone. <laughs> I was annoyed. You know, we talk, oh, talked no, about it last I'm week. Oh, no, I'm so sorry. No, I was annoyed by with Sarah Vine saying, isn't it time she started acting her age? I, I want to say to Sarah Vine, what is acting your age? You know, does, should, should she have a light perm and some elasticated trousers and some hush puppies and just watch Holmes under the hammer in a recliner eating marshmallows? Is that what she means? I mean... Things are different now. People go on. And you don't say that to Mick Jagger. You don't say that well, to Well, actually, Bruce... we do. We do. No, but she hasn't. <laughs> to Bruce Springsteen and to, you know, The Who. They're yeah. all 80. And also, if your neighbour Edna got up to do that show, it would be ridiculous. But she's not Edna. She's Madonna. Yeah. She's been doing it for years. And, you know, what else is she going to do? She's got a legacy. Yeah. She's I mean, a... she's now taken up knitting. She's very good. Has she really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Who told you that? You can get Madonna booties now. Yeah. Shut up. <laughs> um, your show was very good last night, by the <gasps> way. <laughs> Thank you. I'm slightly in love with Zach Abel. Zach Abel. Uh, honestly, I didn't know who he was. No. we Why Zach... didn't I know who he was? Well, it's interesting because um, Freya Riding, who's been on, on this show... Yeah. Uh, she was booked to be on the King's Coronation concert. You know the one at Windsor mm-hmm. where they did. And I don't know, oh, I, I don't know, know what happened, but at the last minute she must have got sick or something, and she had to pull out. And they popped in Zach Abel, and he played the piano and sang live, and he was amazing. And so when I saw his name, I thought, oh, that's who that guy. So we had him on, and I didn't know any of his backstory. Well, the deafness. The, he the was deafness diagnosed ex- with yeah. something quite serious. Yeah, no, it's extraordinary. And and the professional ping-pong player. I- <laughs> yeah, that is a kind of side, side swipe, isn't it? You go, where did that come from? Yeah. And, of course, James Joan Collins. I mean, 90. 90. I mean, Sarah Vine would have a field day with that, frankly, <laughs> saying to her, because she's on tour doing behind the shoulder pads. Yeah. Got a book. She's still going, still sharp as a nut. Um, it's like, you know, at your age, if you still want to keep doing it, keep doing it, and that's what keeps you alive. Yes, it's the, if you did As it... Sarah you, Vine yeah. will realise. Yes, if I did it yesterday, I can do it today. If I do it today, I can do it tomorrow. Yeah. That's the, that's the mantra. Until yeah. one day you fall down some it gets stairs. Quite, it gets quite tiring having to say that mantra, though, doesn't it, every day? Yeah. Oh, did what I do, is it again? Oh, did I do this yesterday? <laughs> do I have to do it today? And I like the fact that you, on your show last night you did have the old school actors, Patrick Stewart and Rafe Fiennes. Yes, yeah. Um, doing act 
store anecdotes where there was this lovely director um, <laughs> and he wanted me to go over. And and then you had the young ones who you say, you know, how, what's it like being famous? I, I don't really know. I just get on with my life. Yeah. Leighton Williams and uh, Maisie. No, not Maisie. Bella. Bella Ramsey. Bella Ramsey. Yeah. Uh, they were great. It was a game of two halves. And actually, they've got lots in common, but kind of not in the other in another sense. Because, you know, Patrick and, and Rafe kind of inhabit such a different world. They do. Than, than and I, I was watching it on the train, actually, despite Storm Babette. I managed to get the only train from the south. Well um, done. Yeah, thank you. And there was uh, a roof on it. And there was a roof. Yeah. Well, when we started, there was a roof. <laughs> <laughs> but I was watching it thinking, you know why people lampoon actors? Because they are easily lampooned. Oh. With their tails, you've got you've got your finger on a buzzer there, like yes, you're going to just click it. Yeah. I feel like I'm going to be cut off at any moment. There it happens. <laughs> Virgin Radio. Dear Graham and Maria, this is our first problem. I've been friends with this particular person for around ten years. During this time, she has been to my house several times. We've been on holiday together. We we've met for lunches, dinners, and coffees. So I assume. They were pretty good friends. However, I feel rather aggrieved. Oh, good. The reason why is because she's never invited me to her house. I have a number of friends and have always been invited to theirs and they come to mine, so this situation feels rather strange. But I've dismissed these feelings, have you? Because I thought maybe it was something to do with her living circumstances or some situation I didn't know about. Recently, I was with a group of people, some of whom are acquaintances to me but are friends with her... And I overheard them saying how much they loved her new house. She lives on her own. I've been on social media and seen that she has had people round. So, I've not been invited. And I don't envisage ever being invited after so many years of friendship. I do feel that when she is with her other friends, I'm ignored and second best. And she does seem to pick up the friendship when it's convenient for her. Consequently, I've cooled off our friendship, but she still contacts me. I feel that the invitation should be reciprocated, i.e. if she'd been invited to my house, I should be invited to hers. And if she invites her other friends, then why not me? I really do not want to ask her outright, as I think that somebody should want to do something, not because they feel compelled to. I'm now beginning to question how sincere our friendship really is. Your opinions would be appreciated, and that is from Emma. In Bournemouth. Oh, Emma in Bournemouth. This has really triggered you into feeling somehow second best. I don't know what's happened in the past, but, you know, you're you're turning this into a thing. So I would say, when you say, you know, uh, that your feelings of not being enough you've called down on her but she doesn't know that she doesn't you know you haven't told her a friend should be someone you can be yourself with you've been on holiday with this person you go to her, she comes to your house you've been for lunches blah 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 I, you just say hey you've got a new house I'd love to pop around and have a look why not just say that yeah. And then that puts her in a position where she has to say, no, I'm afraid you're in my second <laughs> friendship group and yeah. therefore will never be invited. Because you've said, I don't envisage ever being invited over. You're making this into a thing where it's probably not. So you know this person. Say to her, hey, I've never been invited to your house. It looks amazing. Can I come and have a look at some point? You should be able to be yourself. Yeah. Um... I mean, I would say to Emma, the great thing about not being invited to her house is you don't have to go. 
Uh, yeah, but so... this isn't the point, Graham. I mean, not everybody is a hermit like you. I mean, you get your showing off done in all your myriad of showbiz ways. So when you go home, you put on your little fluffy pyjamas and stare at a wall, yeah. crying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they loved me before. Where are they now? That suits you, Graham. But it doesn't suit Emma in Bournemouth because she's feeling second best. <sighs> well, look, I would just say, uh, d- I mean, I... I just don't, don't... I've got people like this and I remember noticing that they had never invited me to their house. Oh, really? Yeah. Was and that me? Was I one of them? No, yeah. you were not. No, oh. endless invitations. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Go on, carry on. And I found it quite funny. I found it funny that they had accepted so many invitations uh, to our house and had never... Never once even even kind of said in the fullness of time, oh, we must have you. You know that kind of, oh, we yeah, must yeah, have you over yeah. and then they never Both do it. Both you know no, that you're never... never said it, never did, I just never did it. And it kind of amused me that, like, okay. Because it is, I must say, in your defence, Emma, it is a weird thing why, given that you have had this woman in your house so many times and you've done all the lunches and, and the coffees. And you're a So it is a bit odd, but it's odd. That's all it is. It's odd. Um, well, but, you know, she's not prepared to say anything about it. But you, all you have to say, Emma, is, hey, your new house. I've got you a housewarming gift. And then get something really horrible, by the way. Oh, no, get her a pony. <laughs> <laughs> a tortoise or something like that to clutter the place up. Or just a little empty box that says, I am really hurt. I am in your second friendship group and I'm really hurt by that. Because saying it out loud, Emma, it does sound mad. And I think this has happened to you in the past, perhaps, or somebody has put baby in the corner in the past. And, and no now, one. And no one puts no a baby one in the corner. So uh, it's triggered you because Graham and I are both struggling to find the real sort of issue here other than just saying to her, hey, I'm never been to your house. Do you hate me? <laughs> I don't know. You should be able to be yourself. Be yourself. Yeah. Or just show up. <laughs> yeah. Track her. Follow her home. Don't do any of those things. These will land you in prison. <laughs> Graham is amused by himself now. Yeah, I like how you just ever following around the streets of Bournemouth. Yeah. I still have them oh, into your house. Oh, Hi. Oh, you live here? You're just going home now. Can I come with you? Oh, uh, it's raining. Can I come in? <laughs> Dumb Responses, part one. Uh, start right now. And my favourite responders today will be getting a bottle of Waitrose Fair Trade Chanon Blanc. It's zesty and refreshing. It has the flavours of green apple, fresh peach and bright citrus with a streak of stony minerality. Ooh, I tell you. Uh, profits contribute to the community on the Stellanhurst Rust uh, wine farm where it's made. So try this Chenin Blanc with seafood, salads, aromatic Asian cheese dishes, or indeed a straw. That's how I like it. Annie Wiltshire, I wonder if you are a perfectionist and have a gorgeous house. Do you do everything to a very high standard? It could be that your friend feels that doesn't come to that that her house doesn't come to that level and they're embarrassed about you seeing their less than perfect home. Not a reason, but a potential explanation of many. If you are not prepared to gently confront your friend, you can only accept it or move on without them. Well said. Ian Preston. Emma, there are friends who love you and friends who kind of like you and she's one of the latter. There's nothing to be done other than focus on those who love you. Uh, Rian says, Emma, uh, well, let's agree she should be removed from your group. She doesn't sound like a great person to have around. Remember reason, season and lifetime. Ah, oh, this is the, the you know, categories of friends. 
Uh, Lorna Norfolk says, I totally empathise with the friend. Ooh, as I am very much the same. I am very sociable and happy to go to other houses. However, having people over makes me feel so anxious. Is the house clean enough, up to standard, tidy enough, etc.? Particularly if I've been to their house and it's lovely. Maybe in conversation, make it clear that when you go to someone's house, you are there to see them and not look around their house. But Lauren, she does have people around her house. <laughs> it's just Emma she doesn't want to have around her house. Uh, Carol in Stamford. My advice for Emma. Ready for this, Emma? Dump that goyle on her backside. Oh, yeah. Tough advice from Carol in Stamford. If she didn't even know she was moving house, is she even a friend? Let's be honest. We've all moved houses and our nearest and dearest all knew about it. She needs to move on. Get a new circle of friends. Life is far too short to surround ourselves with people who don't want us. Okay. Um, I'm going to give the wine to uh, Ian and Preston. Ian and Preston, I'm not sure if we solved Emma's problem, but, uh, you know... Thanks for sharing it. Graham's Guide. Oh. <laughs> that is me. Um, we just got slightly hysterical during that song. I don't yes, even know what it was. I know, I know we got very giddy. Giddy. Giddy is the word. OK, this is the second problem, and it is as short as the other one was long. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Dear Graham and Maria, my friend recently got married and I was a bridesmaid. It was a fabulous day until I saw the best man getting cosy with one of the other bridesmaids. Obviously, something had happened between them, but they didn't see that I saw them, that I'd caught them, in fact. The problem is, the best man is getting married himself in a couple of months. I can't stop thinking about his poor fiance. What should I do? And that is from Danielle in Northern Ireland. Danielle in Northern Ireland. It's a cliche, isn't it? The breast man and the bridesmaid. Yeah. And it's a cliche because people drink a lot of drink at weddings. And then they fall about and then they fall into somebody's cleavage and then they mess around and then in the morning they wake up and they're horrified at their behaviour, both bridesmaid and best man. But they have fulfilled the prophecy of that particular cliche. So, Danielle, I'm going to say to you, do nothing. Do nothing Tell no one. It's not your circus. It's not your monkeys. I mean, do you know his fiance? Is she your best friend? Because if you put your tr- beak in now, Danielle, you'll make it all bad for the nice feelings and vibes of the wedding. And the bride won't thank you and the groom won't thank you. And probably the groom's best man, you know, he probably knows. You know, it's just one of those life things that you happened to have stumbled in on in your pink crimpline bridesmaid dress. <laughs> It was a fabulous day. It was a fabulous day. But I would think, you know, metaphorically and mentally stumble back out of it because no good will come of it and you will be ostracised by both the bridesmaid that you were a bridesmaid with and the best man and probably the bride. And, you know, you'll just stir up this great big hornet's nest. Do you stir a hornet's nest? Not if you're clever, probably. Hit it with a stick. Okay. Uh, Um, I, I just think... Weird things happen at weddings, I think. They do. People go crazy. I think people see two people kind of committing for a lifetime and either they want to commit for a lifetime or they do want to do the opposite. (laughs) They want to just go mad. And that happens. So I think what you've seen is this man and this bridesmaid, um, you know, making a mistake. And uh, we don't know if they're having an affair. But that's the thing. You don't know anything, Danielle. No, you're making a lot of assumptions. And also, I like... (laughs) 
It's like she thinks there's some sort of bridesmaid code. You know, I was a bridesmaid, so I must report this transgression by the bridesmaid. No, there's no bridesmaid code. You don't need to do anything. You just need to hang that frock up and, you know, thank the Lord you never have to wear it again. And forget about this. Forget what you saw. Maybe Danielle in Northern Ireland was cross because she'd had her eye on the best man. I mean, sometimes if a bridesmaid gets off with the best man, you think, what's wrong with me? What am I, chop liver? Yeah, because we all look the same. (laughs) Um... I'm a bridesmaid too. I understand the cliche. It's important that I get off with the best man. And now, the thing is, we nearly always advise people, when people write in with things like yes. this, we nearly always advise people don't say anything. And then, in the responses, I, I get very angry people going, absolutely, you must tell people because otherwise you're allowing this man to get away with awful things. But I, I still think, I mean... Morally, you're probably right. You should say something. But just practically, in the great scheme of a messy world we live in, just say nothing. I mean, you've probably got your own problems and you're just adding to them with this. And Graham is right, morally, of course. But how I feel is that's not going to make any difference. He's going to get married in a couple of months and then he's going to fool around anyway. I'm sorry that that's cynical, but, you know. Yeah, at least let the fiancé have a nice day. Yeah. Yeah. You know, she's bought the dress now. Because if he's going to fool around in front yeah. of people with a bridesmaid, he's just a stupid person. Yeah. And he doesn't care about getting caught. And the tasting menu was so good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they've invited everyone now. And uh, I've really got my eye on that slow cooker. <laughs> so well, do, I mean, how are they going to fix this in a couple of months? They're not. No, they're not. Yeah. And I've bought the air fryer. Their responses, bar two. And again, my favourite responder will be getting a bottle of Waitrose Fairtrade Chanon Blanc. Mmm, zesty and refreshing. Lindsay in Pontefract says, uh, To the bridesmaid who saw the little moment, tell someone else and let them tell someone else. That way you can deny all knowledge and let someone else take the grief. Weddings tend to be everyone else's business, it seems, anyway. I mean, <laughs> I mean that would work, Lindsay. Except, you know, if there's a cut of Colleen Rooney in the gang, they will trace it back to you. <laughs> They will find Bridesmaid Zero and kind of go, it was her. Uh, Chris from Cambridgeshire. The wedding dilemma happened to me with the bride's brother. My best friend was the bride. The bride found out and has never spoken to me again. Say nothing. Okay. Chris has been there. He says, say nothing. Uh, Joanna is in Surrey. I don't know whether Danielle is friends with the girl who is eventually going to marry the idiot best man. But the same thing happened on my wedding day. I witnessed my friend's fiancé trying it on with someone else, and I said nothing, hoping it was drunken foolishness. But I felt guilty ever since, as she endured a miserable marriage and ultimately a very painful divorce. Maybe it wouldn't have stopped her from marrying him, but I don't know, and that's my regret. If that experience was ever repeated, I would definitely say something. I mean, isn't it weird? Because that's, yeah, so that's your regret. But if you did say something, you might also regret that because you've lost your friend and they still got married anyway. And ugh. Karen in Hereford, you are coming over like the wedding police. You don't know what the best man's fiance is getting up to whilst he's at the wedding. Yes, I did think it was odd she wasn't at the wedding. Where was his fiancé? Anyway. Uh, as you don't have a complete case for or against this man and his upcoming nuptials dropped the... Uh, nuptials. Uh, I'd drop the case and have more Prosecco at your next wedding and leave your little black book at home. Have the day off. All right, all right, Karen in Hereford. Elaine Larkin Milbank. Is that the gym in Peterborough? There you go. We've got all the details. So this is being typed while on a treadmill, I imagine. 
Could have been misinterpreted. Do you know the history between them? It could be old time's sakes in the knowledge he is to marry soon. So unless you're going to speak to him, don't say a word. If he's a schmuck, he will be no matter what he does, married or not. <laughs> Gets off treadmill. Uh, thank you for all your responses. I'll tell you what, I'm going to give the wine to Joanna in Surrey because she's had a horrible time and she's racked with guilt. So uh, why don't you drink to forget? There you go. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio. Hey, she's here, everybody. Carrie Washington, <laughs> award-winning actor and now author. Yes. Uh, the memoir is Thicker Than Water. Hello, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, the book, you have that kind of screenwriter, screenplay gift ah. of you kick it off with such a great hook. <laughs> we're, we're in immediately uh, with your drive and this text from your mother. Yeah, it's true. It's kind of like my prologue, because that's how you say it in literary terms. But my prologue is in what television? we call a teaser um, and then I kind of take you back yeah mm-hmm. and, and and in real terms yes was that text from your mother saying you know we've got something to talk about was that when the idea of the book came along or was that much later oh no much later so around the time that my parents the book is has a lot of reveals a lot of personal reveals but one of the big ones and if you don't want the spoiler then turn down your volume but one of the big reveals in the book is that my dad is not my biological father that I was conceived with the help of a sperm donor When my parents gave me this information, I was actually in the process of selling a different book idea. Scandal had just ended and I was going to write this, you know, kind of fun, reflective, but really fun book about the 10 things I learned from Olivia Pope. Yeah. And I sold that book idea and I kind of compartmentalized this information from my parents. I thought I'll deal with that when I need to deal with that. But every time I sat down to write the book I was being paid to write, I couldn't write it. I just, if I was going to write about myself and what I knew, all I could really think about was myself and all the things I didn't know now. And so I tried to give my money back to the publisher. I was like, (laughs) I cannot write this book. But they were really patient with me and encouraged me. And eventually I told my publishing house what was happening in my personal life. And and my publisher, Tracy, was like, well, maybe you could try to write that book. So I did. But also, you kind of wrote the other book too, I I would say. I did in some ways. There are a couple chapters that are filled with the things that not only Olivia Pope told me, but all of the different characters I've played. I feel like they've been mentors to me, all these women, you know, because as an actor, you get to drop into their life at these pivotal moments when they're learning a big life lesson. And so I've gotten to learn those life lessons and then incorporate them into my life. And now, once I understood this new revelation from my parents, I realized why I had spent so much time kind of looking for myself in these characters. I was always looking to understand more about myself or have more clarity about who I was. I often felt more clear about who characters were than who I was. Yeah. And and I always think it's fascinating with a book like this where it is clearly your story. This is Kerry Washington's story. And yet you share the story with other people. Like you you detail some of the difficulties in your your parents' marriage when you were a child. How were they about all of that? (laughs) And were were you kind of giving them little bits and kind of going, this okay? No, I didn't share along the way because I think it would have really 
really crippled me. I don't think I would have written the book I've written as honestly as I've written it if I was sort of seeking their approval along the way. But I did write the book that I felt very called to write. And then I shared it with them before sending it to the publisher. Um, And my parents have been so incredible. I mean, one of the things I've said to people is when they gave me this information, I realized my family had kind of been doing this dance, this sort of performance of this perfect family where we had no issues. And in some ways, I had been like a supporting character in the story of their lives. And when they gave me this information, it was an opportunity for me to become kind of the lead character in the story of my life and maybe let them be supporting characters if they were willing. Um, And they have been. They've been so proud and so supportive. My dad is quick to say it's not necessarily the book he would have written. (laughs) (laughs) But but also I'm interested, is it how they remembered it? Because obviously you're you're seeing it through a a child's eyes. Yes, there is some dissonance. There are places where we don't agree, where we've agreed to disagree. Um, But they've been really supportive of my process. And most of it, I mean, my mom's also a retired professor. So when she read it, she came to my house and gave me a huge hug and said, I'm so proud of you. It's so beautifully written. It's so honest. It's so lovely. And I have some notes. And she had like (laughs) red markings and post-its and she was fact-checking me. And But it was helpful. She made the book better. And I think one of the things is because you're an only child, Mm -hmm. you get all the love uh-huh. But now you get all the responsibility. Yes, it's it's you get all the pressure as an only child. You do get all the love, all the attention, and also all the pressure and responsibility, as you so beautifully said. Yeah. yeah. And one of the themes of the book, which surprised me, is swimming. Yes. Because you don't think about a little girl growing up in the Bronx. <laughs> you know, oh, I'm like I'm like a mermaid, me. But <laughs> so tell us about where you grew up. So I grew up in the Bronx in Jamie Towers, and it was four buildings in this kind of working class neighborhood. We had a pool in the center of our four buildings, which was like the crown jewel of our neighborhood. And then when I was a little bit older, my parents bought a tiny cabin in upstate New York with a, on a lake. Um, but I, all of our, when I started to write, I realized so many of our really important family memories centered around swimming, whether it was in the pool or the lake or in the ocean. From my parents' first date ending at the beach in Brooklyn to, you know, memories of swimming across the lake for the first time with my dad. I mean, yeah. just our family really is so, the culture of our family is is really centered around water. Yeah, and, but it sounds like you're very good at it. So you tell I, a story I, about I'm, I am. when Olivia, Olivia Pope was swimming. Yes, well, I was on the swim team in high school and, <laughs> and during Scandal Years, which I want to say, of course, we're on an actor strike, so I'm not encouraging anybody to watch Scandal right now until we have a new contract, and then you can watch as much as you want. Okay. Um, but I, when I was, I think it was our second season of Scandal, Shonda Rhimes said to me, do you have any special skills that we should know about that we could write into the show? And I was like, well, I'm on the swim team. I was on the swim team in high school. And then like two episodes later, I'm reading a script and some Somebody asked the president of the United States where Olivia Pope is. And it's like, oh, she's stressed out. She's thinking she's probably swimming. And somebody's <laughs> like, does she swim? And he says she was on the swim team in high school. So it's funny in TV how, you you know, your life gets woven into the narrative. And one of the things I didn't know about you is that you were you're one of those things, one of those kids. You were a child actor. I was. I Not not as seriously as a lot of other people. But yeah, in, in, in grade school and middle school, I started auditioning and acting. And my first, the job that made me join the union was uh, an after-school special where I played an unnamed cheerleader, but I had a few lines. <laughs> yeah, but but it became like a big thing. Like your yes. money, your money mattered. Yeah, it did. It really did. And commercials, it mattered. And and I think in a lot of ways it was confusing for me because 
in theater, I really, really loved it. I loved to kind of lose myself in these characters. If I was playing a toy boat in The Velveteen Rabbit or an orphan in Annie, I just like full on committed 100%. And then I would go on these auditions for commercials where it felt like it was more about the money and I didn't have the same kind of passion or attachment. Yeah, but then... You know, you were good and you found good work, which doesn't yes. often, doesn't no, always happen. I'm so happen. lucky. It's so rare to be able to make a living doing what you love to do in any profession. Yeah. You know that. But but being able to find a working, a, a, um, a way of existing as an actor is is such a miracle. I'm very grateful. And and then in the book, you talk about this weird thing that happened to you where you you act opposite people who win Oscars. Yes, twice in a row. If you hire me to play your wife, you might win an Oscar, <laughs> both in Last King of Scotland and in Ray, acting opposite Jamie Foxx and Forrest Whitaker, which I won't take credit. Those are extraordinary performances, but I did start to feel like a bit of a talisman. But you also talk about that kind of weird, and we often hear about it, but I loved reading about what it was like being in an actual Oscar race where oh, you were suddenly, wild. you were in the mix. It's true. It is really a campaign. I, I suddenly realized why it's called a race because it's like a political race. It's fascinating. Yeah. And, and, and is it, how stressful is it? <laughs> well, I was really lucky in those years because I was kind of on the periphery of these Oscar races. It wasn't my performance necessarily that was in the running, but the films were. So it was very stressful, but not as stressful as it was for Jamie or Forrest, I'm sure. Yeah, but then yeah. they won. So, but then you they know, won, yeah. so it's worth it, Get I guess. Get over it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Get a massage and move on. <laughs> um, uh, tell me about Jamie Foxx's advice uh, when you were uh, acting opposite him. There are so many moments in this book that are like a love story, a love poem for Jamie. I'm I'm so grateful. He's been such an amazing mentor and friend and um, ally, co-conspirator. But early on in in Ray, you know, he noticed it one day when I was trying to repeat myself, which is like death for an actor. You can't just recreate magic. You have to keep mining it, kind of keep stirring it up, stay open to it. And he reminded me of that. He taught me that you have to stay curious, stay searching, stay open and act as if everything's happening for the very first time, not look for something that happened two hours ago. So he's been a real tremendous mentor and had such an impact on me as an artist and as a professional. People always say, you're such a great leader on set. And I always blame Jamie because he is such a beautiful leader, so generous. Yeah. And in the book, we found in the book, you're now a producer, you've got your own production company, and you've got your kind of political life as well, your advocacy. And I wondered, that advocacy and kind of putting your head above the parapet and kind of going, I have a voice, I'm going to use it. Has that affected your career, do you think? Mm. That's such a good question. I mean, I think... Uh, part of for me part of the commitment to remaining active in civic engagement is to not let my fame quiet me I think that can be often the seduction of like oh I, w- I want to keep my fans so I don't want to I don't want to offend anyone but yeah. it's been really important to me to stay active I think democracy only works when everybody shows up and um, so I, I think it's mostly impacted my career in positive ways because the work that I do as a producer is the same as the work that I do in civic engagement or politics it's my deep deep belief that all of us matter, that we all deserve to be seen and heard, that we all deserve to feel like the lead character in the story of our lives. And whether that means showing up in our communities and volunteering and voting and making phone calls and and participating, or whether that means creating content where our protagonists look like all of us so that we are reminded that we're all heroes. We all deserve to be heroes. Yeah. 
And uh, you've got an event tonight. I know you're going to be in Manchester. Yes, yes with James Corden doing wow. an amazing conversation. We had one here in London last night with Edward Enninful, which was a blast. So I feel like Manchester is going to be pretty amazing as well. Well, we'll let you go and get up to Manchester. Thank uh, you. Enjoy it. I'm sure the people in the audience will have a fantastic time. I hope so. Uh, Kerry, thank you very much for coming to the top of the tower to talk to us. It's thank been a real you. pleasure. One more time, the book is called Thicker Than Water and it is out in hardback now. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank Take you. Take care. Still to come, Victoria Hislop has a brand new book, The Figurine. But first, ding, ding. Yay. Ding, ding. For, for old time's sake. <laughs> Uh, how are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm very well also. You you also got here dry. Well done. Uh, yeah. I've had enough time to dry off in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, uh, what have you made for us today? So, we're carrying on the Japanese theme to okay. celebrate Waitrose's new menu collection. So this is a brown butter miso udon with crispy mushrooms and a fried egg. Wow. <laughs> and it's a gorgeous looking fried egg. That is a, a yolk and a half. It's a very bright yolk, isn't it? You wonder. It's a, a Waitrose Longstock Gold. Oh, they yes. always come with these lovely, they're like a pale blue shell, which is quite pretty. And then this very colourful yolk. Do you know, I've never bought one of those blue eggs. Wow. So this is what's inside. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. It is a really great looking yolk. <laughs> a great yolk. That's what that is. A great yolk. And... <laughs> And how hard is it? Because I hear crispy mushrooms and I'm thinking, oh, crisping a mushroom must take forever. <laughs> no, your oven is your friend here. No deep frying, no... You could use an air fryer, actually, but oven or air fryer, mushrooms, they go in 20 minutes, nice and crispy. Oh, fantastic. Change the texture, because a lot of people don't like mushrooms when they're a bit slimy, especially when it's in a pasta or a noodle dish. It's really nice to have a change and have something that's crispy on top rather than kind of like woven in. Okay. And how, in terms of, you know, spiciness, how hot or cold is this? So it's not hot in terms of spice. It's actually, yeah, it's uh, miso is the main flavour. So we had miso last week in our caramel. We did. And I did. Is some, it white miso again? I, it's not, it's red miso. Oh! <laughs> We've got the other kind. And I went and did some proper research because last week I was a bit like, oh, I wonder if it is a different bean. It's not a different bean, but it's a different ratio and a different fermentation time. So white miso has a lot of koji, which is from the rice. So it's rice and soy and it's not fermented for that long, so it's quite light in flavour. Red miso has got heavier on the soy, and then it's fermented for a really long time. So it has a really intense flavour, which is perfect for savoury things like this, where it's kind of the main hero ingredient. That is delicious. And sort of, you can't have known, but of course, perfect for today. That Mm. is such kind of comfort food, (laughs) Saturday comfort food. So where do we begin? How do we begin? Yeah, it's proper autumnal comfort food. It's a recipe by Zoe Simons, who is Waitrose's senior innovation chef. I thought as much. thought, wow, this is very innovative. (laughs) I taste the innovation. This is innovation (laughs) of a senior level. It is, but it's a clever recipe because it's kind of taking noodles, taking udon noodles and treating them a little bit like pasta. So we'll get to that a little later on. But first of all, crispy mushrooms. So we're taking a pack of, you want the number one woodland mushroom. So you get like a nice mixture in there. You get some king oysters, some shiitake, a few different varieties. You want to shred them with a fork or with a knife, stick them onto a baking tray, drizzle with a bit of sesame oil, and then they bake for 20 minutes. And that's enough just to crisp them up. Wait, that, uh, just 20 minutes? Just 20 minutes. Nice high temperature. Okay. Keep an eye on them and they become lovely and crispy. Then turn your oven off and just let them sit in there whilst you finish off the rest of the bits. Can I just say that in a phrase keep an eye on them could mean so much just, uh, just keep a little a little eye 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, I did not keep an eye on them. <laughs> they are more than crispy now. That's why I think an air fryer would be good for this recipe because you set the time on yes. that. So you're never going to forget them in there. Yeah. So. And also, it's a, it's a reason to dust off your air fryer yeah. and actually use it. <laughs> Get yeah. it out. Yeah. It's a good autumnal one. Um, and then we're going to take go to the sauce. So it's a brown butter-based sauce. And this is essentially where you take butter. A lot of sweet dishes are made with brown butter because it adds a bit of complexity. We're taking butter, putting it into a saucepan, and you just want to melt it for longer than just normal melted butter. So it takes about five minutes. It will start to bubble, and then the solids will start to caramelise and turn a lovely golden colour, hence the brown butter. Mm-hmm. and it adds so much flavour and it makes especially a vegetarian dish where we're getting all of our kind of main flavour from mushrooms and miso the brown butter just really helps add another little dimension to it so once your butter is nice and browned we're adding a little bit of garlic and some shallots Zoe suggests using the frozen shallots so I thought I'll do that nice and easy <laughs> are there frozen shallots? frozen shallots already chopped three tablespoons I mean this is the, the world's gone mad it's perfect because you don't need a whole one you just need three tablespoons yeah so you just three tablespoons in there Get them nice and simmering. Then we are taking a pack of those udon noodles, just those quick cook straight to wok yeah, ones. Yeah, gotcha. Normally, you'd straight to wok them, but we're going to boil them as if they are pasta. So you want to put them in a pan of boiling water. They only take a minute, it's like a minute or two. Yeah. Put them in there, let them bubble, and then we're going to use a little bit of that starchy water that the noodles are boiled in to make our lovely sauce. So you've got your melted butter with all your things. We're chucking in some uh, chopped spring onions as well for a bit of colour, a bit of nice. green. Then we whisk in our red miso, so two tablespoons quite a lot of miso because it's a dish that serves two people but quite a lot of miso but it adds so much richness to the sauce so the miso goes in then we're taking a splash of that cooking water mix it all together till you get a lovely smooth sauce it's really simple once you've started to mix then add in your noodles toss them all together fry yourself an egg on the side a long stock gold a little sprinkle of black sesame seeds if you're feeling extra fancy okay and then you want to collate it all on your plate so start with the noodles layer them on first make a little nest out of the crispy mushrooms and then the egg sits on the, in the top, in the nest, and that's good. Now, my only note would be, <laughs> if this is a dish for two, do you not need two eggs? Oh, yes, that's a good point, to be fair. I only made it for one today. So oh, I good. One no, because I was thinking, am I being a pig? Because I'm, <laughs> I'm eating this. You should have just like, half. <laughs> I'm eating it. Oh, it's for two. <laughs> Okay, phew. I just did the one egg today. Okay. But you want, if you're for two people, get yourself a bigger frying pan. Do both eggs at the yeah. same time. Oh, Save phew. yourself okay. some time. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm, I'm so relieved. I'm so happy and relieved. Uh, that is how you make brown butter miso udon noodles with crisp mushrooms and, of course, a fried egg. Uh, you could head to waitrose.com slash showchef. You can find that recipe and indeed all of Martha's recipes, or you can go to our socials at Virgin Radio UK and uh, get the recipe and see the visuals. You can see how beautiful that yolk is. It's just gorgeous. Uh, tomorrow, I'm guessing if we had savour today, is it sweet tomorrow? It is indeed. Woohoo! Okay, sugar rush ahoy. Uh, thank you very much, Martha. I'll see you tomorrow. You're Take welcome. care. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio. Welcome to the show best-selling author Victoria Histop. Her new book is called The Figurine. And uh, welcome, first of all. Thank you. Uh, good morning. And Wonderful all, or good to be here. Yeah. Wonderful to be here, Graham. And apologise for the udon noodle whiff in the <laughs> yes, air. You didn't even offer me any. <laughs> so rude. No, I slurped the last one. And I keep forgetting that when you're in the little waiting room, you can see me in here. You were scoffing away. <laughs> There's one little tiny strand left on your plate. <laughs> so generous. <laughs> uh, so the figurine of the title, was that the inspiration behind the whole book? Or did you come to the figurine kind of in the middle of the story? Oh, I come to the figurine really inspired by another much 
greater theft. So my novel is ostensibly about the theft of a little um, 5,000-year-old Cycladic uh, Greek statuette of a woman. And they're re- they, these do exist, these statuettes? They do exist, and they're found by archaeologists all around the Aegean, um, not in huge numbers, and any that are absolute, whole and undamaged are very, very rare. Most of them are found in graves, and they're very mysterious. 95% of them are female, um, and they're designed to lie down. So very often they are found in a grave next to the bones of the deceased from 5,000 years ago. Um, and nobody really thought much of them. Uh, when they were found, until Picasso and Modigliani and all the modern artists began to see them and to be very inspired, and they sort of became an icon for a modern art movement, yeah. and, and and therefore became incredibly valuable. And now, you know, you you'd have to pay up to sixteen million dollars for one of these beautiful things, and legally you're not allowed to buy and sell them. You know, they are restricted and regarded as very valuable. Um, But when I came across uh, these figurines myself for the first time and and just adored the aesthetics of them, they are extremely beautiful. They're like a little mini supermodel goddess and very lovely. They're they're, they're sort of doll size. They are doll size. They're less than a foot in height. Yeah. Um, but what had been interesting me for a little bit longer than that was this sort of big controversy over the theft of the, uh, what I call the Parthenon sculptures, and some people call them the Elgin marbles, yes. and there's always a little bit of a tussle. Um, and I got very uh, interested in that subject because I was always being nagged, um, which is quite a polite word, by my Greek uh, friends and people who interviewed me in Greece about what I thought about where the ones that we have in the British Museum should really be. And there's a huge movement to have them return to Athens because it's so we have a bit of a jigsaw here and where they came from um, is waiting for them. And I always sat on the fence. It made me unpopular in Greece um, because I wouldn't actually say... Yes, it's disgraceful. I believe they should go back because I loved the British Museum so much and felt they did a good job there of showing Greek culture to tourists. Um, But then I began to read about how Elgin actually extracted them from the Parthenon Temple um, and why he did. And essentially they were for his own house that he was building in Scotland. They were never intended... Uh, for us to see, they were just going to, you know, decorate this very fancy pad that he was building for himself. Um, So it was a very selfish act, uh, which he did um, illegally. You know, he wasn't given permission to take them. Um, And by the time he got back with these shiploads of sculptures, some of which had already sunk to the bottom of the Aegean and had to be hoiked up by divers... um, He was bankrupt when he got back. Uh, He'd spent all his money on this two-year operation to remove these sculptures and have them brought back to... to So Fancy Pad never happened? Fancy Pad never happened. His wife, by the time he got home, uh, his wife had left him and he had a very expensive divorce case on his hands. So he had 
no money. Um, and the British government essentially bailed him out, this sort of bankrupt, no gooder, which is how I really regard. Yeah. He was an ambassador, but you know he was an aristocrat. You know, yeah. I think it wasn't such a difficult job to get yourself in those days. Um, so they gave him thirty-five thousand pounds, which covered the cost of the transport and the paying of the team uh, to remove them. Um, I could lecture on. Well, about I was going to say this, hours, is a fasc- this is a fascinating story. But all of this <laughs> was my sort of burning yeah. Yeah. Um, inspiration that made me want to write a novel about the theft and the whole idea of where home is for a valuable cultural artefact. And although, you know, I, I love the figurine very much, beneath the surface is a very um, passionate view I have that we, we shouldn't half-inch things from other countries yes. and then put them in our museums and say aren't we marvellous, this is ours, come and have a look. Because it, many of the things that we have in our museums are not ours in the sense that yeah. you and I think but about we should, ours. But we should point out that the novel isn't about Elgin. It's, oh, about, it's, it's about Helena. It's, it's about, about Helena. Helena. And we, we yep. join her uh, as a very young girl. Is it 1968? Yeah, begin? she's eight years old and she visits Athens for the first time, goes to stay with her grandparents, who are Greek, and her mother is Greek, her father is actually Scottish. Um, and through the eyes of this little girl, we see an Athens that actually we wouldn't recognise today because in that period, in the late 60s, early 70s, it was under a military dictatorship, uh, the Junta, who were three colonels who took over the country in April 1967. And through her sort of innocent eyes, uh, we she observes things that gradually uh, reveal to her the kind of regime that the country is under and her grandfather's own very big involvement in it. So, you know, you think of your grandparents being lovely, cuddly people, always reliable. The first time in her life she meets somebody who is actually very cold and heartless and um, she's sort of on the receiving end of some of his brutality. So the years go by and she learns more and more about him, about how he's behaved and indeed about how he has actually received many stolen artefacts. So her task as an adult is how she makes recompense for what he's done. And Helena, it seems to me, am I right in thinking, you know, we're talking about uh, Greece and the artefacts, but actually a lot of this book isn't in Greece. A lot of it is in London. It's in Oxford, where she goes to university, and in a little town in Suffolk where she grows up yeah um so there's a little bit of autobiography in there I didn't grow up in Suffolk I've actually rather to my sister's annoyance um based the town of Delbridge on the town that she lives in called Woodbridge (laughs) where nothing bad ever happens you know it's sort of the antithesis of the Athens of the 1960s uh very quiet and yeah she she is a little bit me um, and you you write really well about kind of university life and the kind of the crushes and the disastrous love affairs and the friendships and all of that sort of stuff. Um, did it kind of whet your appetite? Did you think, oh, maybe I could write a book where there's no Greek Greece well, in it at all? 
I struggle to do that. Oh, did you? But I'm quite pleased with the character of Helena because she is the most, even though she's half Greek, she's the most British uh, character I've written. Um, well, then I wouldn't have such an excuse to spend a lot of time in Greece, would I? If you I don't need an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> Just head out there. You'll be welcomed with open arms. But yeah. now, now you've got off the Elgin Marble fence, I mean, they'll yes, be loving you. <laughs> absolutely. I'll get a free pass. Um, but... I, I just cannot see myself finding a story, uh, finding something that really inspires me. Because ultimately it is a story about Greece. Yeah. And it's a story about her finding where she should be. So although it's about where the statuette's home really is, it's also about where her heart finally lives. So. And, and the setting it in 1968, was that to get her to the right age or were, did you want to explore that kind of dark bit of Greek history? Yes, I've always wanted to write something with a big background of the of the hunter because it's so much um, closer than any other part of Greek history that I've written about. And, of course, it was in my lifetime. And mine, and I felt so and stupid because I didn't... I mean, when I read about the junta, I kind of thought, oh, yes, I do vaguely remember vaguely, this. But I yes. don't really remember how awful it was. No, I mean, I think we remember the moment perhaps that the junta came to an end which was triggered um, by the 1974 Cyprus invasion by Turkey that was what actually brought the junta to a close and I think that was when I began to read the newspaper you know when it wasn't just something sitting on the kitchen table yeah. that my parents read um, because we had such a connection with that Cyprus situation. But that was all very much tied up with the, the Greek hunter. And when you um, talk to Greek people now, <clears> is that is it very kind of recent for them? Is it kind of like scratch the surface and they will have a, a terrible story? Well, I hate to say this, but a lot of Greeks have quite fond memories oh. of the period um, <laughs> because it was a time of prosperity for many people. And they really encouraged tourism uh, the hunter. It was they, they saw the potential for bringing in income. So lots of places that have become resorts um, since that time. The, the, the big hotels there were originally built um, under the dictatorship. So it's a little bit of a mix. You know, occasionally I have to um, sort of tactfully walk away from someone I'm having a conversation with in Greece because I assume that all my friends are sort of pretty socialist and liberal yes and most of them are but then i'll suddenly find an older person that will say well it was very safe to walk around in athens in 1970 um and i want to say to them yeah but you weren't allowed to have long hair they arrested musicians and poets and writers and anyone who just they've, they've forgotten that bit and there were a lot of people in exile a lot of the really, you know, people like Melina Makuri, the famous actress who yeah. eventually became the Minister of Culture, uh, you know, they were in exile. They they couldn't live under the, the colonels. So a bit of a mixed um, view, a little bit as it was when I wrote a book about the Greek Civil War. I'd suddenly find people coming down on me like a tonne of bricks. And do the books come out simultaneously in Greek? They come out um, about a month later. Oh, okay. So I have a couple of weeks before, you know, the avalanche <laughs> the, of people saying, how dare yeah, you criticise the hunter? The <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the, the, the official view of it is that they were 
disgraced. They were put on trial at the end, the colonels. I mean, they were treated as criminals. And, um, in fact, some of them were sentenced to death. Um, I think they didn't actually, they weren't, um, they didn't go through with it, but they were imprisoned for life for what they brought on the country. So, yeah, officially they are on the black pages of the history, the dark side. Um, But there are many people who had fond memories of, you know, how safe and lovely it was because there were so many soldiers in the street. Nothing (laughs) nasty ever happened. Uh, As you can tell from this conversation, The Figurine is a multifaceted novel. It's the story of Helena, but it's also got politics, it's got art, it's got uh, love affairs. It's it's got, I mean, you really have packed it all in. (laughs) Uh, It is out in hardback now. Victoria Histop, thank you so much for coming in to see us. It's a huge Uh, pleasure. Take care. Lovely to see you. Enjoy the rest of your Saturday. Thanks so much for listening today. You can catch me every Saturday and Sunday from 9.30 on Virgin Radio. Follow us on all our socials to keep up to date and make sure you check out our YouTube channel too. Just look up at Virgin Radio UK and you'll find loads of great interviews and live sessions. Until next time. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio.